Welcome to Practical Christian Living. When you are genuinely born again, what happens is, is that you all of a sudden want to start doing what God wants you to do. All of a sudden you say, I, I don't want to live by my flesh. I don't want to live with these lusts in my life. I don't want to live for money. I, I, I want to live the way God wants me to live. And so your life changes. And repentance is a sign that you've made genuine commitment to Christ. When we first make a commitment to Christ, there should be a real desire to change the way we live and to begin to live our lives for Jesus. That desire should grow and grow in our walk with the Lord and our knowledge of His Word and His will. If you haven't been walking closely with Jesus, but you have a desire to come back to Him, He's waiting for you with open arms. Please stay with us for this encouraging teaching out of Hebrews chapter 6 and what it means to be truly saved. Here's Robert Furrow. Then he gets into something that, that he wants to talk about. For it is impossible. And you may want to highlight the word impossible. You might want to underline it. It's an important word in this text. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of heavenly gifts and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him, that is Jesus, to open shame. Well, if you read that, as it says, if you read it fresh, you only get one feedback from it. That if you've done these things that they list in the beginning, you've been enlightened, you've tasted of the Word of God, you've tasted of the Holy Spirit, you've become a partaker of, of the things of God, and then you fall away, it's impossible to renew you to repentance. It's pretty clear. When you read it at face value, you go, uh, there's no really way around this. So how do people who believe that once you make a commitment to God, you can't fall away? How do they deal with this text? There's three ways in which they do it. All three of them, I think, have great weaknesses. Uh, number one, they say that, uh, that, that this text, starting with verse four, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, that they're talking about being enlightened, not really being saved, have tasted, talking about people who have tasted it, they taste it, but they don't, they don't go all, they don't eat it, they just taste it. So they say that this is talking about people who dabble in Christianity. They've been enlightened, but they haven't received the light. They've tasted, but they haven't received it. So they're dabbling in Christianity and it's impossible for them once they dabble in it to return to repentance. Well, that's so bizarre. It makes the passage worse. It doesn't make it better, right? I mean, you're talk, you talk about people who have genuinely been saved. If they fall away, then they can't come to repentance again. But now they change it and say, if you dabble in Christianity and you fall away, you can never come back to repentance again. And to them, that you go, well, that's weird. Are you really willing to say that every person that's ever dabbled in Christianity, it's impossible to bring them to repentance? And then they say, that's so bizarre that we know that can't be what it's saying. So they make it say something that's so outlandish and then they go, okay, so we know it's not saying that because that's too outlandish. That can't be the case. But I believe that those statements tasted... There's other places. You can look in scripture and see how the word is used in other places and learn from the context. So the word tasted is used in another place, a couple other places, but it's used to say in Hebrews, Jesus tasted death for every man. When it says he tasted death for every man, it doesn't mean that he tasted it 
and then excluded himself from death. It means he tasted it and died. So this word tasted is used. It's never used, by the way, as tasted and not received it. It's always used as in tasting it to eat it. Just because you taste something doesn't mean you didn't eat it. That's what they're trying to say. Well, they tasted it and didn't eat it. No, they tasted it and they ate it. It's saying the opposite. This is a genuine saved person. This is a person that has had a genuine salvation experience. That's the statement that's being made. The next way that they deal with it, what I call kind of biblical gymnastics. Well, this verse is hard. It doesn't fit into my theology, especially if you're a Calvinist. This verse is difficult. It doesn't fit into my theology. What do I do with it? Well, verse six, Charles Riley dealt with it this way. It says, if they fall away. And then so Charles Riley says, well, that's if. It doesn't say when, it says if. So that means it's hypothetical. This is a hypothetical situation. It can't happen. That's how Charles Riley deals with it. He says that, that this could happen, but it can't happen. It's impossible. So it's never going to happen. So don't worry about it. My problem with that is, why is there a warning in scripture that's hypothetical? Why would God warn us of something that can't possibly happen? That doesn't make sense to me. As I approach the scriptures honestly, I say, eh, I can't honestly say that. If you're leaving church today and you go down and catch the freeway there on Houghton and you head on out, you're going towards Sierra Vista and you see a sign that says Elk Crossing, like you get up north in Pine Top, right? And you go, what idiot put that there? There's no elk down here. There's no elk in, in Southern Arizona. They're all up north. No one would put a sign up unless there's something wrong with that individual. Or unless the sign company paid off the city. I don't know. I don't know. There'd have to be something funky about it, right? Because generally, generally, signs aren't put up for no reason. Sign warnings are there because there's a reason. When there's when a lot of accidents that happen on a certain corner, one of the ways they solve that is by putting up signs. You know, they'll put up something, a sign around the corner. Uh, there's, a, there's a signal light ahead. They put that sign up there because somebody came around the corner too fast, didn't notice the signal light, and had a crash. And so they put the warnings there. God isn't wasting time. God isn't going, listen, if you fall away, it's impossible to renew you to repentance. Just kidding. It could never happen to you. I, I don't think that the hypothetical argument is a good argument. The last argument that they use, and you see why I call this kind of biblical gymnastics? Because they're trying to make something fit because it says the opposite of what their theology says. The final one is that God's really not talking about salvation here. That God's talking about your rewards so there's a passage in Corinthians that talks about your rewards being tested by fire and that you make it in. If their wood hands double, they'll be burned away. If you've done it with the right motivation, that your rewards will follow you into heaven. And so they say, what this passage is saying is that it's impossible to renew you to repentance. That's really talking about your rewards. Here's the problem with that. Again, it's like, spirit, it's like biblical gymnastics. Rewards are never in this context. You can't just introduce something into a context and call that good a Bible exegesis. When you are interpreting a text, you've got to look at it in context. You've got to look at what's being said. If it doesn't say what you like, you can't all of a sudden go, I'm going to add this to it. I'm going to add that to it. I'm going to add this to it. You've got to have a reason that you would introduce that into the text. The only reason they, they have to introduce it into the text is it doesn't agree with what they believe. So they end up introducing it to make it say something that it doesn't say. I don't think that's a good way to deal with it. Now, what is a good way to deal with it? Well, let's look at what it says. First of all, it says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit 
and have tasted of the wood, good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's a list of genuine Christians. He's saying it's impossible if you have had a genuine born again experience. Then verse six, if you fall away. Now, I think the away there is away. I don't think it's saying for if, you had, if you've had a genuine Christian experience and then you backslide or then you struggle, that it's impossible to renew your repentance. It says, if you fall away. This is somebody that has left God completely. It's not someone that's struggling with the sin. It's not someone that's backslid, but still wants to come back to Christ. It is somebody that leaves completely. It's someone who was a Christian and now they're an atheist. It's someone who was a Christian who says, I don't want to follow God. I don't want to live for him. I don't want to give anything to him. They are now living back in the world completely and totally. It is an extreme, okay? You, you are a genuine, born-again Christian. You had genuinely found salvation and now you are away from God. What it says about you then next is it's impossible to renew you to repentance, right? There in verse six, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Now it doesn't say it's impossible to renew you to salvation. It says it's impossible to renew you to repentance, Repentance is when you have such a desire to stop living the way that you're living that you begin to live a new way now. When you are genuinely born again, what happens is, is that you all of a sudden want to start doing what God wants you to do. All of a sudden you say, I don't want to live by my flesh. I don't want to live with these lusts in my life. I don't want to live for money. I, I, I want to live the way God wants me to live. And so your life changes. And repentance is a sign that you've made genuine commitment to Christ. Repentance is a sign that you want to change. When I was a youth pastor, back in 1982-83 in Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque, a couple girls came to me after our meeting one night, our youth meeting one night, and they had Hebrews 6 opened up. The girls had tears in their eyes. And one of them said, we, we've done this and we, we, we can no longer be saved. And I said, do you want to come back? And they go, yeah, we want to come back, but we can't. And I said, well, then you haven't done this. What do you mean? How do you know we haven't done this? Because you want to come back. It's impossible to renew you to repentance. The person that is impossible to renew them to repentance doesn't want to get saved. That means that if you're here and you've done this, here's what it looks like. You were a genuine believer. You were born again. You were genuinely saved. Then you walked away. Not like a little move away. You were away. How were you? You were away, right? And now you don't want to come back. You go, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I don't want to. No matter what you say about heaven, no matter what you say about life here, I don't want to come back and be a Christian. That means you cross that line or it's possible you have. And now you might say, well, that's not fair. I should be able to go back. Well, then come back and repent. Well, I don't want to come back. Well, then you might have crossed the line. But that's not fair. I want to come back. What if I want to come back? Then come back. But I don't want to come back. Well, then maybe you crossed the line. <laughs> the only way you know that you haven't crossed that line is to come back. Because the person that crossed that line isn't going to come back. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. So they're not going to come back and they're never going to want to come back. So there's never a person who made a genuine commitment to Christ and then fell away that says, I want to come back and I want to live for God, but I can't. When you say, I want to come back and I want to live for God, you might have come close to that line, but you haven't crossed that line. When you cross that line, you never want to come back again. And there are examples of men who have done that. Pharaoh in the Old Testament is one of them. 
You remember the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and that his heart was hardened six times in the account on the plagues. Six times we are told that Pharaoh's heart is hardened or that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And on the seventh time, and seven is the number of completion, and you can go look this up. On the seventh time, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It was as if God said, I've given you six chances that you would not harden your heart and that you would follow, but now I'm going to firm up your decision. Pharaoh at some point crossed a line and God said, okay, you can't go back now. The scribes and Pharisees during the days of Jesus, those were who, was, who were his enemy. Jesus began his ministry by teaching plainly, openly the principles, but at, at some point in his ministry, he stopped teaching plainly and openly and he started teaching only in parables. And when, when the explanation is given, it's because he didn't want the scribes and Pharisees to hear, turn, repent, and get saved. And we go, whoa, Jesus began to teach in parables because he didn't want them to get saved. They had crossed a line. They'd gone too far. And so Jesus said, no matter what now, I'm not going to allow them to be saved. They'd gone too far, up to a point they could get saved. And we know that many of those leaders did. Nicodemus did. There were other rich men. Uh, rich leaders that did get saved, but there became a point where most of them crossed a line and he would not let them come back over that line again. It's gone too far. Now, the next logical question is, where's that line? If this is the case, how do I know if I cross it? So I can get just as close to the line as I can possibly get. I want to live here. I, I like lust. I like alcohol. I, I like living for myself. I, I like living for things. And so I want to get as close to this line as I can. And that's the unsaved line. But I don't like Christianity that's over there. I like the world. And so I want to be as close without going over. So I want to, how close can I get? And the answer to that is, I don't know where the line is. And you don't know where the line is. So you are dabbling in a very dangerous place because you might cross that line. It's like if you're going to the Grand Canyon, you have a five-year-old son with you, and your five-year-old says to you, Mom, how close can I get to the edge of the Grand Canyon before I fall off? And you're going to say, I don't know, 10 miles, because you're not going. Because <laughs> that's the wrong question, right? The, that's the wrong question. It's the wrong question to say, how close can I get to the edge before I fall off? How close can I get to the line before I can't come back anymore? Instead, you should say, how close can I get to Jesus? There's controversy in the church. We talked about the controversy today as to whether or not once you've been saved and you fall away, if you can come back. There's controversy over it. Good Bible teachers on both sides. But there's no controversy for those close to Jesus. No one has ever said to me, how, how close can I get to Jesus and not be saved? Everybody knows there's security in Christ. And people say to me when I teach a teaching like today, you're robbing people of their security. Who am I robbing from security, by the way? Is someone who's walking with Jesus, are you guys robbed of your security? No, your, your security's increased. You know, as long as I'm hanging out with Jesus, there's security in Jesus. The only person that I'm taking away their security is the person that's dabbling on this line. And why wouldn't I want to, if they're gonna cross a line where they can't come back, what kind of a pastor would I be if I didn't tell them about that line? If I told, am I going to comfort the apostate in his apostasy? Am I going to say to him, it's okay. You're a devil worshiper, but you'll go to heaven because you made a commitment to Christ one time. Once saved, always saved. Like people say, you know, well, I mean, you raise your hand, you come forward. Doesn't matter what you do. You can become a devil worshiper and still make it to heaven. Really, there's going to be devil worshipers in heaven. We're going to walk up in heaven and go, who, who made this pentagram? I know it was that devil worshiper. He got in by the loophole. 
raised his hand one time and now he made it into heaven. Now we got to go through eternity with these devil worshipers here. There will be no devil worshipers in heaven, all right? There's a line that got crossed, and if he doesn't repent from that in time, I'm not saying that a devil worshiper can't repent and come back to Christ, because he certainly can if he hasn't crossed a line. The line, first of all, it's a very difficult line to cross, because the Bible says that Jesus will leave the 99 and go after the one. So Jesus comes after you, and he's pulling you, and he's trying to get your attention, and you have to literally fight him off to cross that line. The prodigal son went and spent his inheritance on riotous living, the Bible says, parties and prostitutes. And yet when he returned home, his dad was on the porch looking down the road to find him. And, and, he, and when he saw his son coming, he got off the porch and he ran to meet his son. Benny Hester said this in a song, it was the only time, the only time I saw God run when he ran to me. And he took me in his arms, he put my head to his chest, and he said, my son's come back again. The only time in the Bible God is pictured in running, he's not pictured in running to judgment. He's not pictured in running to, to in anger or wrath. He's not pictured in running in any other way except to run to the prodigal. God is so much wants you to come back that if you're a prodigal and you're away from him today, He's running to you. As soon as you turn around and say, God, I want to come back, he runs to you. He embraces you. He puts a robe on your back and he puts a ring on your finger. And he says, as the prodigal, uh, as the father said to his prodigal son, my son who was dead is now alive. It's a hard line to cross. But once you cross it, you won't want to come back at all. It's a scary line to cross. But it is a difficult line to get to, to be able to go over. Now, Paul is not writing this to tell them that they've crossed the line. He's writing them to tell them they are in danger of crossing the line. That's the real power of this message today. It's not in saying to those of you that have crossed the line that you can't come back, you guys can't come back. It's in saying to those of you that have backslidden and walked away, find yourself away from God and heading in that direction, there's a line out there that you guys don't want to cross. So turn around and come back from it. So Paul gives an example, a picture to help with clarity in verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful to those to whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. If the fruit is good on the land, the land receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near being cursed whose end is to be burned. He's saying, listen, if your life is bearing fruit, the fruit of godliness in it, then you're blessed. But if your life is producing thorns and briars, then you have no confidence that you're being blessed. And perhaps your end is to be burned. Now, again, they're going to say, well, this is talking about burning up your rewards. It's not talking about you being burned up. It is the land that is in danger of being burned. Okay. It goes on to say in verse nine, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, of things that accompany salvation though we speak in this manner. He says, even though I'm speaking in the manner of, of you going too far, I'm confident you haven't crossed it. Paul's saying, I know you. I know the fruit in your life. I know you guys love God. I know you love Jesus. I've seen the fruit in your life. I'm telling you that you could cross it, that it's out there, but, but I'm confident of better things for you. I'm confident of salvation, he says. And even though I speak in this manner, verse 10, for God is not unjust, forgetting your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Because these Hebrew Christians 
had become genuinely saved, there was fruit in their life. Part of that fruit was that they ministered to these saints. We're not told in that verse how they ministered. We're simply told that part of the fruit that they had was that they had ministered and that God was not going to be unjust in not blessing them for how they had ministered. Paul is saying, I'm looking at your life. Here's the picture. One piece of land is fruitful and it's not burned. Another piece of land, thorns and briars, and it's burned. He goes, but you guys are fruitful. I see your fruit. So I'm confident. He doesn't just say I'm confident because I'm confident. I'm confident because nobody can cross the line. He says, I'm confident because I'm looking at the fruit in your life and I see that you guys have genuinely been saved and you haven't crossed the line. But then he says in verse 12 that you might become, excuse me, verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope. See, he talks about assurance, assurance of salvation, full assurance of the hope to the end. The Bible says those who run to the end are saved. You finish the race. I heard John MacArthur, who leans towards Calvinism, say one time, the only way you really know if you're saved or not is if you make it to the end. Well, that's interesting because that sure doesn't seem like very much assurance to me. How do I know if I'm saved today? Only if I run to the end, I'm not going to know until the end whether I'm not genuinely saved. That's a lack of assurance. Where I believe the closer you get to Jesus, the more assurance you have. I have great assurance today that I'm saved. But you've got to run to the end. When I heard John MacArthur say that, I thought, well, I agree with you in this. You've got to run to the end. You didn't get saved to become a Christian for two years. You didn't commit your life to Christ to become a Christian for five years. You got saved and became a Christian so you could grow, mature, and be used by God, so you would be the light of the world and salt of the earth. And so you want to run to the end. You don't want to be sluggish. And so we come to the final verse, which says that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who by faith and patience have inherited promises. It takes two things to run to the end. Number one, faith, believing in God, no matter what things look like. And number two, patience. Patience because life often takes twists and turns that cause us to have to be patient. Well, I know I'm going to make it to the end, but life right now stinks. And I need to, through patience, make it to the end. Galatians puts it this way. Don't grow weary in doing well, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. Don't faint, don't grow weary in doing well, but through faith and patience, follow the example of those that have gone before us. Men like David, men like Samson, men like Abraham, men like Moses, all of them had their individual struggles, but through faith and patience, they inherited the promise. And I'm stealing from later on in Hebrews, by the way. This is the point made later on in Hebrews. So we, by faith and patience, inherit the promises of God. And if we do so, we will not cross the line and we can have that great assurance. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for your word and the richness that's there. We, we listen to what's said here. And again, we don't believe that this warning doesn't have any merit. We believe there is a point you can go to where it's impossible for you to return to repentance. And Lord, I pray for those that may be dabbling around that line, for those who may be sluggish, not running the race with efficiency, for those that have gone away, backslidden, walked away from you. I pray that they would come back today. I pray you'd give them boldness. I pray that they would head back to the Father's house and, and experience firsthand what it is like for the Father to run off the porch, embrace them, cry on their shoulder, put a robe on their back and a ring on their finger. 
And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kgun 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.